Welcome to Teach, Think, Treat. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary pediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hi, my name is Lee Chin Lim. I'm the Education Fellow in the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub. I think we're all aware of the effect that COVID had on student learning and teaching for healthcare professions. Universities had to adapt to new methods of teaching, primarily with online teaching, and students had to then adapt to learning from home and in many cases missing out on some significant clinical placements. But what was the scale of the impact that missing out on clinical placement had on the students? Well, today I'm joined by Stephen Lacey, or Steve, and Adam Stewart. (laughs) Both Steve and Adam are tutor radiographers, with Steve working at Royal Children's Hospital and Adam at Western Health in the west side of Melbourne. Steve and Adam are here to talk about a research project they did to investigate the effects that restrictions and limitations on clinical placement and education as a result of COVID had on the development of students and their preparedness to enter the workforce. Welcome, Steve and Adam. Thanks, Lee Chin. Yeah, thanks, Lee Chin. Well, we'll jump right into it. Adam, I'm going to start with you. So what prompted you to actually feel the need to conduct this research? As a clinical educator, I see the importance of clinical placement And so it's always a concern to me if there are things that are going to affect that. We're at a time where there is all sorts of uh, pressures on clinical placement, access to it, um, what we can get in the clinical placement. And when COVID kicked in, I guess um, there were a lot of placements that were cancelled in some cases for long periods of time. Certainly Victoria were pretty heavily affected. From my perspective, I was starting to see and concerned about some of the the, the effects of that. And that's what got got me sort of thinking about, I need to look into this a bit further. Mm, Exactly. No, you're right there. So what did you notice in your students early on during COVID? I believe that's a time when there yeah. were no placements. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So the first concerns, I guess, were they weren't allowed to come on site. So initially the first round were just cancelled altogether. So there was a whole first round of clinical placement time, four, six weeks, whatever it was, was cancelled straight up. And then even after that, we had significant restrictions on it. They weren't allowed to certain spaces, clinical spaces that um, I think were important for them to develop and learn. And I guess that's from our perspective, that's what I first started seeing and started thinking, well, there's going to be big holes here and big gaps. Um, and that's what I first sort of started noticing that, looking at that. So, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about what kind of restrictions. Sort of hospital-wide, really. Students weren't allowed into sort of certain areas that were peak COVID, so ICU, emergency areas. Um, we have mobile chest imaging, so mobile, mobile imaging. Um, so students were allowed to do mobile Im- imaging to, they could, but not to COVID patients, not to certain places. That was another modality, for example, that was just completely ruled out. There was limited access to those sorts of things. So by and large, the clinical placements themselves were kept, tended to be very carefully guarded, you know, more considered about where they could go. And they're just large elements um, of probably some of the more important things in a public hospital, in a hospital-based system like emergency, ICU, fluoroscopy, theatre, those areas were off limits. Um, so that took a lot of the learning opportunities that we in a public system have to offer out. Yes, I can definitely see where you're coming from. And that must have been tough. So is there anything else you notice about the students during this period? Yeah, look, I guess their knowledge, uh, the abilities that they had coming in weren't at the same level that we'd seen. Certainly later on, the theory to practice gap 
started to open out a little bit more. The depth of knowledge coming in wasn't quite there. Um, and I'd spoken briefly to Steve and some other colleagues and clinical tutors, and, and they'd sort of suggested they were seeing a similar thing. And I guess that's where we started looking into the project itself was, hey, look, you know, we're not doing face-to-face education. We've got all these restrictions on. I feel like I'm seeing impact. They felt like I was seeing impact. And for us, I guess it goes to the heart of research is, well, we should look further and see if this is just something we're seeing, a trend we're seeing, and if, or if it's just something more global or more broad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what led to, the, led to the project, I guess. Yeah, no, I think it's quite important. So I'll come to you, Steve. So you were part of this. And how did you see whether this effect were more widespread? You've got to really hand it to the universities, I think, because they were dealt with such a, a, a pretty bad stick, I think, in, in the fact that the students couldn't even come on site to do classes, let alone send them out to clinical yeah. placement. And they totally really right. had to, to deal with it and say, well, you know, how are we going to allow these students to still graduate in four years with all of these restrictions that are actually going on? And of course, literature had, had documented a large number of, of the restrictions and they'd examined the issues associated with the student learning. But when we actually looked at it and we were looking, at, looking through the literature, we couldn't actually find anything that was relating to the effective restrictions on student development or their preparedness to enter the workforce. And that wasn't just from a medical imaging perspective or, or radiation therapy. That was across all healthcare in general. And so we wanted to identify this effect to give us the opportunity to provide direction for our profession in particular to apply resources to, to remedy this issue. So what we did was we prepared a quite a lengthy survey. I think I counted it was 44 questions. I think, in oh, the end. wow. <laughs> and we uh, sent it to clinical educators uh, around Australia across both the disciplines of medical imaging and radiation therapy. And even though we looked only at the medical radiation profession, like I said, I think we suspected the problem is going to be evident across all disciplines of, of healthcare. So it's likely that it's not going to be consistent across the di- disciplines, though. I think it's going to affect different disciplines in different ways. But uh, yeah, we wanted to make sure that we had a look at both. Mm, Of course. Yeah. So was it just you two conducting the survey or were there others involved? Well, myself and Adam, we represented the radiographers and we also had um, another guy, Chris, uh, from Barwon Health in Geelong. And we we were representing the medical imaging side of things. And then representing radiation therapy, we had a guy called Kenton, who was from uh, Peter Mack. And also uh, Nigel, who is from the Olivia Newton-John Cancer Wellness Centre. Our study supervisor was none other than uh, Amy Gray, who is, uh, many of us know, is the uh, the head of the education hub here in uh, the hospital. Yeah, no, sounds like you already got a good spread around Victoria. So let's talk about this survey. 44 questions. I'm not sure how I would like to answer that survey, but <laughs> that how, how were the responses like? Well, that, that's an interesting thing because I think the fact that we had so many questions probably limited how many responses we actually got. And I, I think did. if we had to do it again, we would probably l- limit it even further. That question. And, yeah. And so we ended up sending the survey out to about 150 uh, medical radiation professional clinical educators across Australia. That was directly, but we were relying as well on a snowball effect with others. So we're not really sure how many it ended up going out to. We did end up with 55 responses, which we thought wasn't too bad given the uh, enormity of the Mm. survey itself. Uh, And these 55 responses gave us a fairly even spread across radiographers and radiation therapists. It was almost a 50-50, I think, for that. Uh, And we got a lot more responses, though, from the public metropolitan centres as opposed to your private centres or your your regional centres that might be biased in the fact that a lot of radiation therapy tends to be in public and metro areas anyway. Mm, yeah. So, Adam, did you find out about how much clinical placement time was missed? Yeah. So, look, most of the findings themselves obviously based on, I guess, the clinical educators and feedback from clinical educators across the country. 
amount of placement time that clinical sites were taking on for 2020, that first year of the pandemic, was about 75% of what they had normally taken on. So about 75% of their normal capacity was taken on through 2020. Um, we saw a trend, it started to come back a little bit through 2021 when we sort of all, I guess, figured out how to manage this and how to deal with this. And, you know, we're able to get sort of students on site again, but it still wasn't quite 100%, but was was nearing it. But we were trending back and I, I'd be interested to see, but obviously I'm not doing it for, for, for last year, but be interesting to see how 2022 went, if we could get back to do that again. But cl- clinical placement time, or our maximum clinical placement time in that first year, trending back, you know, the biggest issue is probably the cumulative placement time that was lost. Because in 2021, uh, about 40% of respondents said that, you know, more than 25% of cumulative placement time was lost. So students had lost you know, in the order of around 25% of the placement time they should have got. Yeah, that's losing one quarter. That's yeah. pretty that's significant. That's huge, isn't it? Yeah. huge, yeah. So, yeah, what do you think of the impact of missing this one quarter of placement time? We looked at the impact of COVID students' initial performance and we, we thought the best way to look at the impact was to value that against the, our MRPBA or the Medical Ration Practice Board of Australia. Um, that's, the, I guess, the governance board that we, we all fall under um, and look against their professional capability domains. I won't go into the domains themselves specifically, but for all the five domains, we saw that COVID had affected um, the student performance in less than 10% of the time, meaning it was largely a negative effect through the, through the broadest focus less than 25% were capable of meeting the professional capabilities. That's a pretty big number. So it does suggest a really significant impact on the student's ability to meet the capabilities and and by extension, meet the the requirements of the workforce. Absolutely. So do you think COVID is the main culprit affecting this? I think before the pandemic, there appeared to be adequate opportunities for students to gain placement requirements and experience. And and when we certainly asked that question in our research, the, the results came through that the research did agree with, with that fact. But during the pandemic, when there were restrictions in place, about 86% of respondents said that there were no longer adequate opportunities anymore. And this made some recovery after the restrictions. And I think we're kind of slowly getting back to our, our norm. Uh, but not quite back to normal at, at the time of the study. And we've got to remember that this study uh, we sent out, I think it was July in 2022. Yeah, so uh, now we're, you know, quite a few months later and, and we're seeing that, it's, that it, it is getting a lot better now. For those students in that particular time, it's going to have an ongoing impact of the ability of them. And many of them are now actually junior staff in their own department as well. Mm, so what are the major areas that you think might have impact them? Well. We identified three major areas that impacted on the placement. So one of them was the group social opportunities, um, which of course in any workplace is really important to help with that team dynamic atmosphere. There was also the availability of the clinical staff to be able to help them when they were students and and helping them kind of get through and, and understanding a little bit more information about what was actually going on. The clinical staff, the ones that were actually supervising the students, were the ones who were actually burning out because they were, they were doing so much work. So not only did they have all this extra work to do, they also had to supervise students at the same time. And that probably just contributed a little bit to the burnout. Oh, yes. And I think all, all three of us here are very aware of the <laughs> yeah, burnout issues. Absolutely. So now you're seeing new qualified staff because you mentioned some staff, sorry, some previous students are now new junior staff. So how are you finding them? So in some cases, we are seeing some qualified staff having some issues, but where that happens, we, we've kind of found that we've had to invest a little bit more time into them in terms of their orientation and that, than, we, than we normally would have in the past, I think. Yeah. 
And we also realized that universities have had to adapt with their own teaching them and, and that many of them went to virtual university training as opposed to face-to-face. Of course, that was, you know, that was a necessity. But there are certainly a lot of positives about this and it really enabled courses to continue, which, like I said before, which I think is, is great that they could actually at least continue instead of just saying, well, you know, we're just not going to have a course for a couple of years. <laughs> Put on hold. <laughs> when it came to preparation for placement, though, 79% of respondents disagreed and that the virtual training was going to be able to replace the face-to-face training in order to prepare them for placement. Yeah, so basically majority of the respondents do not think that virtual training um, can replace clinical placement. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And that's, I guess that's how you'd expect it to be, you know, but that's the necessity that we've had. Do you have anything that supports our statement here? You can't replace clinical placement with online training. Yeah, so the respondents actually identified three main areas of clinical education that they thought needed further support. So one of them was clinical time. They said that it was time actually out on the clinical placement. A second one was patient interaction, which kind of goes hand in hand when it comes to clinical time as well, but also the variety of clinical experience that they would, that they would get from going to, to one place, from one place to another, such as, you know, going from Western Health all the way over to the Children's Hospital as well. I think that none of them, though, were really able to be achieved. None of those types of factors are really able to be achieved in that virtual environment. Yeah. Yeah. And that I agree. Let's move on to the safety and well-being of the students. Um, Adam, did you find any of the results? Talk about this. Yeah, this is one of the results that I think highlighted a big problem. It probably was the main concern and one of the concerns when I initially spoke to Steve about some of the things we were seeing in students. Um, And it was good that the research, I guess, in this case, uh, reflected back what we were seeing and and gave us something to look at. Um, You know, more than 80% of the, the educators that were surveyed felt that the well-being of students had been impacted by the, by the pandemic um, and that this was going to affect their confidence and resilience. Uh, and we also saw in the results where 66% believe that the students lacked the confidence to practice without the intervention of supervisors. So, you know, mo- well, two-thirds of the educators that were surveyed were saying that, you know, without the intervention of the supervisors, the students were really not going to, were not open to really engagement. So it aligns, yeah, with, it aligns what with what we were seeing. Absolutely, seeing. yeah. How does this impact on the student and the workplaces? Because if they can't practice without, I know they will be supervised, but I guess the intensity or the time or the capacity of the supervisor to spend with the students, what was the impact on this? When we first went into the whole project, it was, to, as Steve said before, to try and work out if we're seeing this trend and if this trend is happening, where do the resources go? What do we need to do? What do we need to think about in the coming years to, to sort of modify and fix mm, that? Absolutely. Uh, and what I guess from that perspective, what it means is it means that students have become more aligned on the supervisors, on the people around them than ever before. And so we need to put resources into place to, I guess, um, not hand feed them, but to provide them that confidence and the ability to sort of begin to act and step out of the shadow of the educator, not to be so hand fed. And that's that's going to take a few years, I imagine, and and probably for you post qualification. We're talking about these the new young professionals that are entering the workforce now, and this is where we need it now. You know, in fact, seventy, uh, a bit over uh, three quarters of of the respondents of the educators felt that graduating students will definitely require um, supportive periods upon entry to the profession. So, this is what we found, and this is where we found these are the resources that need to start happening. And the the purpose of the study was to say, what do we need to do going forward post COVID? Well, yeah, that brings us to. The very tricky next question, (laughs) (laughs) because yes, we would like to support these students who have been through a rough time to enter to the workforce and be a new 
professional themselves. But how long do you think they would need some extra support for? It is a million dollar question, isn't yeah, it? Absolutely. How hard is it? Yeah. How long is a piece of string? You know, we, we can argue, you know, it could be six to 12 months um, for some students, but it, it could be a lot quicker for others. And I think it might take three, three or a few months, but some may need a, a lot longer to, to go. The bit of the study and the purpose for it was to highlight, I guess, some of these concerns. Look, we are going to have to invest greater resources. Departments are going to have to accept that there's going to need to be more resources placed on their new entry or, or their new radiographers. The unfortunate reality is that, that COVID's resulted in, in a, a greater theory to practice gap, as I said before, and, and I guess our results tend to reflect that. It reflects what we thought and, and we're seeing it in the results from other educators across the country. I, I will have to say here, though, that I don't think it's all of them, though. No, I true. think there have, there have been some students that I think have thrived, I think. Well, not thrived, but I think they've done, they've done particularly well given the circumstances. They've shown some amazing resilience, I think. Yeah. But there has been a, a big kind of gap, I, yeah. I think, looking at, at, at or a big, bigger spread, I think, looking yes. at what, what you've got from people who are really requiring a lot more assistance compared to those that aren't. Yeah, I, yeah I, and I would totally agree with that. Well, Steve, with all the doom and gloom with your results and the impact that is having, um, as we discussed, is there anything positive that comes out of the survey? I know it has sounded very negative, hasn't it? It has been, and I, that's the problem with this, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, though, there, there were some positives that I'm very happy to highlight when, it, uh, when it comes to this study. So one of them is that we now have a better understanding of how to correctly use PPE. <laughs> we I think, all do. I think yeah. everyone does, yep. <laughs> There's also the obvious ability for us all now to meet online, and I think that's had a huge effect all around the world. There's some level of increased resilience, uh, as we've all had to learn to quickly adapt to change. Students are now being forced to be more proactive in their clinical placement time, and I've personally seen this as well in my own department. Yeah. They're, they're coming in and they're just saying, what else can I do? How else can I learn? Is there anything you need me to, to do to help out or anything like that? But it's also forced us educators to, to improvise more, become a little bit more interactive with our education. But I would also have to say, I think it's really strengthened the discussions that the clinical tutors are actually having and the clinical educators are actually having with one another as well. I think we're, we're really kind of feeling the fact that we're all in this together and that we're all part of the same team, really. And, and the universities and, and all the players, I think, to some degree, it sort of forces us to have to think outside the box, not just the clinical educators. Universities were great at thinking outside the box. They yeah. think of a lot of good ideas. So I think, yeah, it's, it's strengthened a lot of those relationships. That's one of the things I've seen as well. We've all had to think our way and, and work our way through it. So yeah. hopefully that continues. Mm, these are all fantastic and some of the points I hadn't considered before. So I think it's clear to all of us that there will be a need to ongoingly support the students. So how can we do this for the students? Unfortunately, at the moment, we, um, we just need to have that closer direct supervision, particularly in the early, early phases of their, of their um, placement, just to make sure that they're, they're trending in the right way. And again, as we've said, it depends on individual students. Um, some will tend to, to really jump in and some have really made the most of the opportunities they've got and some really need that. Uh, some of these students we have to remember have spent, in fact, the students we have now, the, the sort of third year students we have now, have spent their entire three years, the whole university experience has been through COVID and, and largely online. It's, that will have an effect to their emotional uh, well-being, um, their resilience. And, and I agree with you, Steve, I think that their resilience has, in some ways, actually, they've, they've become a bit more resilient students post-COVID um, and, and been a bit more proactive with their learning. But, you know, they are going to need the emotional support. They are going to feel like they're a long way behind. And, and I think it's important for us to just gently 
coach them through, and I think that's something to do. Um, they'll need to, to further develop their skills in communication and confidence. Um, it's all been online. So, you know, certainly in the healthcare network where it's always you've got to get used to speaking and, you know, your communication skills need to be pretty astute. These are areas I think we probably have to continue to develop and, and assist students to develop in. But ultimately, we just need to give the graduates, you know, a bit more supernary time where we can, you know, the opportunity to just train at their own speed and, and, and slowly develop. Mm. I think what would really be interesting, and I'm probably opening a big can of worms here and, <laughs> and I'm going to start a big race amongst all of the universities as to how this is going to happen. It will be interesting to see now that everyone has had to adapt to the, the new learning environment and obviously the courses are now run differently compared yeah. to what they used yeah. to be. I think what will be really interesting now is to get a cohort of post-COVID students and graduates mm -hmm. That, have, that have, haven't had to do any placement or anything like that during the COVID period, but post the COVID pandemic, mm. compare those to the ones that did placement and did their courses pre-pandemic and just see what is the difference between those two? Yeah. Mm. How would you quantify that? That'd be good. <laughs> that's yeah. that's not my one, research. Again, I'm not doing it. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> we should ha we'll handle that research paper. I'm not part of that. <laughs> well, thank you so much to both of you for sharing your research with us today. I believe this is an issue across many healthcare disciplines and I'm sure many listeners will resonate with what you discussed and we should all find ways to help our students as educators. So any final tips before we finish off? Uh, well, look, I think it's obviously going to differ from person to person, but I think it'd be worth almost treating newly qualifieds like they're still in their final year of uni. Not, not all the way through, but at least to, at the very beginning. And you might need to give them time to train in areas, a little bit of extra time, a little bit of extra supervision, and allow them to attend tutorials that, that the educators run for yeah. the students. I think that we, I've actually recently done some um, PDAPs and with, with my staff, and I think that one of the things that kind of came out of that is that that's something that they would actually like is to, to be involved a little bit more in the education rather than just going, right, you've, you've finished now, you're qualified, you're off on your own. That's it, yeah. spread your wings. Yeah. Um, our profession in particular We've tended to do that final year really well, that final year plays the fourth year, prepare students into the workforce. And we've probably been, I guess, certainly I'm speaking from my experience, a bit neglectful when it comes to, okay, they've entered the workforce that first year out. Mm. Um, so I think I would tend to agree, and it's, it goes along the lines of what I've said before as well. I think, you know, um, developing sort of new graduate type programs, you know, three, six months, whatever it might be, just a bit of a soft building, tutorials and those sorts of things. I know that's sort of what I'm working on. At Western, I know we've had discussions about the same thing here. So I do agree. I think that, that we just need to be, and we need to be patient. I think we need to be patient with the, the students or the new grads, really, and the students, because it's, it's been a pretty difficult time. And I think the, the results of our research tend to suggest what we're saying, that it's a difficult time for them. It's a difficult time for everybody. Hopefully we're coming out now and we can start to, to rebuild some of these guys through. So yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for both of your time. Thanks, Thanks, Lee Chin. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast channel, Conversation with the Experts, where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.